If you have a Bible, I can tell you we're going to be in Revelation chapter 20 tonight. We're going to be talking about a super easy topic, one that everyone agrees upon. Oh, no, wait, hang on. It's a topic that not everyone agrees upon. We're talking about the millennium, or often known as the millennium reign of Christ. I look at it slightly different. I take Revelation chapter 20 and I break it into three sections. Reign, rebellion, and retribution. So we're going to look at the whole entire chapter. And as we've been looking at eschatology, you guys are so easily impressed with animations. It's really Microsoft does all the work. It's not me. As we've been looking at eschatology for the last two weeks, and Pastor Chris is going to wrap it up for us next Thursday, there are a lot of issues in the book of Revelation, and I would call them timing issues. Whether or not you should take the preterist view or hysticism or idealism or futurism, what about the rapture? Is it pre, mid, post, pre-wrath? We could study the book of Revelation for the next year and a half. There's enough there to study. Tonight, we're talking about the millennium, the millennium. And we'll look at three distinct positions. We'll look at amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. It's Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost who said, a large body of prophetic scripture is devoted to the subject of the millennium, developing its character and condition than any other one subject. And a lot of people will disagree with that. They're like, I disagree with that statement. And I say, well, the truth of the matter is you probably have not studied a lot of the Old Testament because that's where the idea of the millennium reign is. Some people in our society today are looking for a utopian society. Well, I can tell you that most people are looking for a utopian society and none such has ever existed and no one's ever pulled one off. Not even the hippies with all of their ideas in the 60s of peace and love and everything else. They didn't, they couldn't pull it off because no human institution can do what God can do. Amen? No, insti no human institution can do what God can do. The millennium and the concept of it is easily found in Isaiah 65. It is found in Daniel. It is found in Ezekiel. Very in large part near the end. And it's cued in largely in Revelation chapter 20. People don't like to study eschatology because there are some sticky points. I'm not going to sit here and tell you there aren't sticky points in eschatology. There are sticky points in eschatology. But I think Revelation 20 can be broken down very easily with rain in verses 1 to 6. Then we will see a great rebellion in verses 7 through 10. And then we'll see retribution in verse 11 through 15. But what I think we really need is a definitionist point. I think there's the need to define because we're talking about something that not everyone will agree upon. We're talking about the word from which we get millennium. In the text of Revelation chapter 20, verses one through seven, the word kilioi appears six times in the text and is translated in every English Bible I checked as thousand years. And I checked a lot of them. I just want you to know, they all, whether they agree or disagree upon a literal interpretation of this, they all take chilioi, not being idiots, knowing what the Greek word means, and they all translate it as thousand years. The question remains, why? And why is there such argumentation? 
simply because that is the majority usage of the word kilioi. In short, that is what it means. It's what it always means. I personally cannot find a passage in either the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament, the LXX, or anywhere in the Greek New Testament where kilioi means long period of time, as many assert. Because plenty of people say, well, it just means long period of time. Well, my retort to that is, oh, does it? Well, then it'll be really easy to find. Amen? It's an easy way to find something out. If it's that easy, then let's just find it. Well, here are all the words from which the Hebrew is translated into kilioi in the Septuagint. The majority usage you'll see is the giant blue in the circle. And what is it? 1,000. Then working from the right hand up, it's 1,000. 1,000 with no definite article. And the verse is literally, a 1,000 shall fall at your right side. Then it's thousands of vines. And then the one ambiguous, and I do mean one, the one ambiguous place that I think it's probably mistranslated is towards until or the, the no number equivalent. And it's basically Abimelech brings a whole bunch of sheep and it doesn't say how much it is. So you know what the Septuagint writers did? They put in kilioi as a placeholder for a huge number of sheep. You don't base a theory on one verse. Ready? Let's all ask ourselves, is the Septuagint an inspired manuscript? No, it's not. It was translated in 275 BC. It's not. It's a translation. And so it's not an original. You know, you know how many, do you know how many sheep Abimelech brought? No, you don't know either because I don't know because none of us know because it doesn't say in the text. The idea is he probably brought a lot. But we can't make a doctrine out of that one whole thing. But let's look at it in the New Testament. Because again, most of the time when it's used, it's a thousand. And then the other time is one thousand. But a thousand and one thousand is numerically the exact same word. It's the same numerical value. In Revelation 11, 3 and 12, 6, kilo is used for 1,260 because it's tied to the 42 months in Revelation 11.3, but it's also tied to the words in Greek for 60 and 200, which means kilioi is 1,000, and then you have the number for 200, and you have the number for 60, and that's going to equal 1,260. It is also equivalent to the 42 months. Remember, the Jews did not use the 365-day Julian calendar. They used the lunar calendar, which is 360 days a year. Right? So three and a half times 360 will bring you to 1260. So again, it's still what it means. In Revelation 14, 20, Kilio is used in John, and he uses it to translate the concept of 180 miles. He did this because he joined Kilioi to the Greek word for 600, hexakosakai, 1600. So you have 1,600 equals 1,600. Any which way you look at it, it's 1,000. That's what the word means. It means 1,000. So let's take a look by way of charts and graphs, because I just love charts and graphs, and I think that 
They really help people who are visual learners. Let's take a conceptual look at ah uh, millennialism. Uh, millennialism, just so you know, is predominantly the eschatology system of, does anyone know? Roman Catholics and many reformed churches are ah uh, mill. So this is kind of ah uh, millennialism in a nutshell. It says that the church age and the millennium are side by side and are taking place at the same time, all right? So if you are an amillennialist, you believe we're in the millennium now. The church age and the millennium occur at the same time, at the same exact time. Now, what they do that I think is really exegetically bonkers is they take the first resurrection in Revelation chapter 20 and say it's spiritual. Well, that's a spiritual resurrection, which is a really funny contradiction because what the heck is a spiritual resurrection? I don't know. I'm not an amillennialist. I, maybe, I thought maybe someone here knew. I, they say that one's spiritual. And if you're an amillennialist, you believe that there is a gradual societal decline. Things just get worse and worse and worse. And that leads to the return of Jesus. And then the second resurrection mentioned in Revelation 20 is that one's actually a physical. There's an end of days resurrection and then you move into eternity. So if you're an amillennialist, this is what you're looking for. Society to get worse and worse. And then with nothing, no gauge, no marker, Jesus is coming back and there's going to be a resurrection. So this is kind of the big idea of amillennialism. You've got creation, you've got the fall, you've got the mosaic age. And then right here, the church age is the millennium. And we're going to talk about, at least for me, why I think a couple of these things are really kind of problematic I know why people are millennialists because it's the easiest system to justify and it doesn't require any real hard thought. But there are massive, massive contradictions. At least I believe when we open Revelation 20, we'll see them really plainly. Now, the next system is post-millennialism. Now, I know who that is. The question is, do you know who that is? That is James White. And while I believe he's a great debater, I'm not so sure I like all of his theology because post-millennialism for me is the one I really can't understand. I understand amillennialism, but I really can't get behind post-millennialism because post-millennialism says a lot of what the Amil says. They take one part of the verse and they take it allegorically the first resurrection of the dead, that's just somehow spiritual. And then the second one, that's, that one is somehow physical. And post-millennialists, believe it or not, also believe we're living in the millennium right now. Only here's the difference. They believe there is a gradual societal improvement. So the Amil say everything's going down, right? Post-millennialists say, oh, no, 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 no. Everything's on the uptick. 
Look, the world in large part is going to come to a saving belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just real quick. Anyone today, does anyone think that society is on a massive uptick? No one's even willing to shout anything out? Well, that, that just shows me where you're all at. Now, now, no. Society, society is not on an uptick. Post-millennialism was very, very popular in two periods of time. After World War I and then after World War II, when a lot of evangelical outreach was taking place and a lot of people were getting saved. After that, not so much. Because it's the same thing. Why do we have a weird interpretation that's only spiritual here, but physical here? I can assure you right now, the word in Revelation 20 is not in a different tense and it's not a different Greek word. It's the exact same word. I don't know what in the world would justify someone to use an allegorical, highly symbolic view of one and then a literal of the other. At least be consistent in your exegetical methods when you read and preach. If you're gonna go allegorical, you're stuck with both. It's the same word. You can't make it mean something spiritual here and something literal over here. And that's absolutely what both systems do. So here's the big idea of post-millennialism. The start of the millennium amongst all post-millennial scholars is somewhat debatable. Um, although they, again, they, they have some kind of area of it's either the resurrection of Jesus or the day of Pentecost. It's something kind of like that. Some take the millennium very literally, some do not, which means some see it allegorically as a long period of time, others use a thousand, which means to some post-millennialists, the real millennium is somewhat hard to determine because they think it's going to track with Revelation 20 and be a thousand years. But most of them all say the same thing on this. There will be a tremendous expanse of Christianity which is funny because a lot of the post-mill people I know are like dyed-in-the-wool, ardent five-point Calvinists. So I don't know how they get around their Calvinism with all of a sudden droves and droves and billions of people are going to come into the church. It, it seems to rub against their system. I don't understand that. There will be increased peace and prosperity in the world. Not entirely sure I see a lot of that. I see a lot of hunger. I see a lot of desperation. And I see a lot of poor people in the world today, for sure. And a large number of ethnic Jews will come to faith in Christ. That's another part of post-millennialism that not everyone kind of agrees. And then some post-millennialists will say, there's a very short time of apostasy, of turning. And then there is the resurrection of the dead and final judgment. And we move into eternity, a new heaven and a new earth, which is hysterical because the same people who are eternal securists say a huge uptick of people get saved and put their faith in Jesus and then they all apostatize and then Jesus comes back. And to me, again, it just sounds like a, just a lot of confusion and not really well thought out theology. Which brings us to premillennialism, which I'll tell you right now, make no bones about it, I'm a premillennialist. I just am. Premillennialism is the system of theology that says the church age is just that. The church age is the age 
that began with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, not the day of Pentecost, with the resurrection. Jesus breathed upon his disciples and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something. When Jesus breathes on you, you get something, okay? He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And I believe they most certainly did. Then the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they spoke in unknown languages. But that was 50 days later. Jesus stayed with them 40, ascended from them in Acts 1. And then 10 days later is the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is 50 days after Pesach. So it's right in the name. We're in the church age, according to this system of theology, right now. And I believe we are in the church age which is gonna see everything that Jesus said we would see. The love of many grow cold. Some people come to saving faith. Some people act like boneheads in their Christianity. Some people act like real Christians in their Christianity. I think we see all of that in the church age. There will be a seven literal year tribulation. That's seven literal years. The middle of the tribulation is the 1,260 days, but there will be a literal seven-year tribulation. It is believed in this system that that seven-year tribulation is God the Father pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting, not society, world. Read the book of Revelation ever so carefully. There's only two classifications of people from Revelation 4 to 20. Only two. Hagios. Saints and earth dwellers. And an earth dweller appears to be someone whose dwellings are not only on the earth, but their affections and their love and their passions are on the earth. Two kinds of people, saints and earth dwellers. Then the second coming, the Lord Jesus shall return in great glory with thousands upon thousands of Holy ones clothed in white. Revelation 19, 11, he'll be on a white horse. Faithful and true is his name. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And there will be a literal resurrection of the dead. There'll be plenty of dead people to be resurrected. Then there will literally be a 1,000 year reign the very golden age that every society has always looked for, all right? Everyone's looking for the utopian society. That is exactly what the millennium reign will be. After the millennium is over, there will be the great white throne judgment. That's the second resurrection when all the other dead come to life and are judged. And then you move into the time that is outside with no time, eternity. It is the time that is forever. So church history is a great place for us to start because people always ask me, what was the view of the early church? Well, the early church until Augustine almost universally believed in an earthly historical reign of Jesus initiated by his return. Tychonius who wrote around 8370 was the first to even suggest a spiritualized interpretation saying that the millennium is now making him the father of all millennialism. And it must be understood as a spiritual reign of Jesus, not a 
literal rain. And the more the church moved on and got away from its historic Jewish roots, the more Gentile and Westernized it became. This is why Augustine picked up this system because that's exactly who really pushed it the furthest was St. Augustine, who was a Roman Catholic, which means his view is adopted by Augustine, hence is adopted by the Catholic Church and many Reformation theologians today. People always ask me why. Why, Pastor Jay? Why, after the Reformation of 1517, did the Reformers stay with amillennialism? Because they got overly fixated on the pet doctrine of soteriology. That's why. They didn't reform a lot of their other doctrines. A lot of the time, those of us who are in favor of the Reformation say, it's high time we have a, another one. I think it's time for another one. I really do. It's been a little over 500 years now. I think we might, uh, might want to reform another couple of things here in the church. It's really good for the church to take an introspective look. Writing early in the second century, right around 8135, Justin Martyr declared this. There was a certain man with us whose name was John, one of the apostles of Christ, who prophesied by revelation that was made to him that those who believed in our Christ would dwell a thousand years in Jerusalem and that thereafter general and in short, the eternal resurrection and judgment of all men would likewise take place in his book, Chapter 81, Dialogue with Trifo. Now, what's so important about that? Well, since Justin lived in Ephesus, which you know, was one of the seven churches mentioned in Revelation, his testimony is especially significant. Justin Martyr was, without fail, ardently premillennial in his eschatology. And if you look at the chilliest versus the amillennialist, it's real easy. For the first roughly 370 years of the church, all of the early church fathers, both post-Nicene and a few anti-Niceans, believed in the millennium. Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian. So from the time of St. Tertullian to Tychonicus is about over 150 years of church history. That's how long it took to drift away from this position. And there's a lot of different reasons why people drift from a position. I think some people wrongfully thought the Lord Jesus was coming back lickety split. He was coming right back real soon and didn't realize that there was quite some time between the 69th week of Daniel and the 70th. And in all honesty, is that not in keeping with Christ's character? What does 2 Peter, you know, 3, 8, and 9 say? The Lord is not slack, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That doesn't mean everyone's coming to repentance. It means that God, in his foreknowledge and in his grace and in his mercy, is giving people all the time in the world to repent. That's a God of grace. Think of it yourself. For us older folks, it's a lot easier. But if you think, if Jesus came back five years ago, would, would you have been a believer? If Messiah Jesus came back 10 years ago, would you have been in his fold or would you have been a goat? And would you have, would you have been an outsider, not adopted by grace into his kingdom? 
What if Jesus came back 15 years ago? There comes a point where everyone goes, yikes, I was alive and definitely in my sin and rebellion and not a believer. So it's not in humanity's time to set these things, which is why every time the disciples asked those things, Jesus would say things like, it's not for you to know times and seasons the Father has set according to his own will. Matter of fact, in Acts 1.8, when they ask one more time, he tells them again, no, it's not for you to know. Go preach the gospel. What should the church be most concerned with? The church should be concerned with the gospel, okay? It's not just for unbelievers. It's for believer sanctification as well. We need to be trained up in all righteousness. We need to be full of God's spirit as well as full of God's word that we can be equipped to actually share when the gospel is met with contention. So let's look at the first six verses of chapter 20 here. It says, and then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for 1,000 years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and he shut it and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image, and who had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So this chapter, this chapter here opens with an angel coming down. Some old school commentators say it's Jesus. It's not. It says an angel. It's an angel. Just remember, Satan doesn't have more than likely any more authority or strength than any other created angel because that's what he is too. And in all honesty, I think Michael and his angels beat the snot out of Satan and his angels and they get kicked out of heaven early in Revelation. So, you know, he's a sore loser. That's why he goes on such a tear. But it would, it would appear that it could have been any old angel. It doesn't matter who because he's on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter what angel it is. But an angel comes down and John sees him holding a chain and binding Satan and locking him in a bottomless pit called the Abuso for a thousand years, a thousand years. Now, according to amillennialism and postmillennialism, and here's my sticking point with this, for a thousand years, what does it say next? It says that he is sealed and bound for a thousand years that he should no longer deceive the nations. Stop. Does anyone think the nations 
are no longer, de- are no longer deceived. Sincerely. You'd be like, oh, you're picking on my heart. I grew up, I was in a Presbyterian church. I was on mill my whole life. Ask yourself, sincerely, in the quietness and the recesses of your own God-given mind, do you really think Satan is bound in a pit and is unable to deceive the nations? There is so much demonic garbage going on in our country today. It's disgusting. I don't wish to share some of the horrific things I even heard today on Matt Walsh's YouTube channel because it was absolutely bone-chilling, grotesque in nature. And so I can't for a second think that Satan is bound and chained in the abuso because a stragizo, a seal is set over the, you know, wherever he's bound. And everyone says, how in the world do you bind an angel? I don't know how you bind an angel, but you know what? I'm not God. If God wants to bind you up, you will be bound up. Trust me. In a spiritual dimension on another plane, somewhere else, you will be bound up. The angels who first left their abode are bound, it says, in Tartarus. That's also in Peter's writings. Tartarus is funny because it occurs one time in the entire New Testament. One time. Does anyone know their Greek mythology really well? Tartarus is not where bad people went. That's Hades. Tartarus is where rapists and murderers went because it's like hell's sub-basement. It's worse. In Greek mythology, Tartarus is the hell that is beneath hell. I wish that the English translators would have just had the common sense to translate it as Tartarus, just transliterated. Don't call it hell because you confuse people. The angels who first left their first abode, who I believe sinned with, you know, the the daughters of men in Genesis 6, producing the Nephilim, the fallen ones, I think that they are present day still chained up in Tartarus, awaiting their future judgment. Well, they can't get out because they're chained by the authority and power of Almighty God. If Satan is chained up right now in the abyss, I, with many other pastors, have had to ask the question, how long is that chain? Maybe a little too long. Did he find a back door to the dungeon? I find it hard to believe that Satan could possibly be bound today. He's going to be for a thousand years. But notice this because this is a sticky point and I can't get a single amillennialist to answer me this. And after the thousand years, he must be released, but for a short time. Well, if the millennium stops with the return of Christ, when is Satan released? I'm just asking. And for what purpose? I think it's in the text, but it's conveniently ignored. After this, John sees thrones. And judgment was committed to them. I believe this is a distinct reference to the church. Now, again, this is, a, this is thrones. This is not in heaven. This is not in heaven. This is an earthly scene. All right? This is the millennial reign. There he sees the souls of those who were beheaded for the witness to Jesus, those who did not receive the mark, and they came to life to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. That is the first resurrection. Who will be resurrected when the Lord Jesus comes back 
in Revelation 19.11. It only stands to reason that it is probably the, and I'll level with you. I don't have a number. I'm not willing to say what the number is. But I'm telling you, those who are not part of the 144,000, who are every one of them ethnically Jewish male virgins. Ready? That's why it's a short number. Don't get excited, everyone else. That's who the 144,000 are. God seals them, signifies them, and protects them throughout the tribulation period. Everyone else, I hate to tell you, is fair game. And my problem is, as Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And I tell people, it doesn't wreck my eschatology system. I don't think the church is on the earth for the seven-year tribulation period. I think believers in Christ who come to a saving knowledge of Christ after the rapture could never be called the church. That's why the Bible calls them saints. It's the same word is, that's used for Old Testament believers. Saints, not the church. The church is something highly unique in God's program. It is neither Jew nor Gentile. It's both. It's Jew and Gentile together with no, show, with no social standings. Both are justified absolutely freely and wholly by the blood of Messiah. It's not either, it's both, not either of them. Jew and Gentile alike. And those who lose their head for their witness to Christ Jesus come to life and are given the same opportunity that those in the church have, and that is to rule and reign with God, who is Christ Jesus. What do we do with the rest of the dead? Well, it says so. Verse five clearly states for us, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is a reference to the saints, again, who died to the, in the seven-year tribulation period. When Jesus returns in Revelation 19, these souls will be resurrected and be on equal standing to, in glorified bodies, rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. Now, these people, the second death holds no power over these resurrected saints. They shall rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. As promised in Revelation 2.11 and... It's the second death that holds no power over them. Again, as stated in Revelation 2.26, Jesus will give his, over, his overcomers power to rule and reign over the nations. So the rest of the dead who don't come to life are those who are outside of the covenant community. The rest of the dead are those who do not know Christ and who did not receive Christ, most likely who perished, and many people will perish in the tribulation period. And I have a lot of people at this point say, well, what do you do? What are, you, are you gonna get all excited if the Antichrist is revealed and they start building a temple, second temple and the rapture doesn't occur? I said, no, we'll all lose our heads together and go see Jesus and then be resurrected seven years later and rule and reign with him for a thousand. It sounds like a good plan. I'm good with it. See, I'm, I'm okay if the rapture doesn't occur. It hasn't swayed me. I still think it's going to occur. But what I can tell you is I don't believe for a second that the church rules victoriously through the seven-year tribulation period. It doesn't say that. It says those who stand up for Jesus and are outside of the 144,000 sealed are gonna get their heads cut off. Beheading. That's how Rome put people to death. It's also how Islamists put people to death just for some context. It's, it's meant to do the job 
No mistakes about it. So let's look at verses 7 through 10. Now, when the thousand years were expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this is what happens when the thousand years are over. When Satan is loosed from the pit, he will be provided the leadership needed to bring to the surface all the sin and rebellion left in the world. He'll pull together all the rebels, revealing the true character and intent of those Christ-rejecting sinners, making it evident that God's judgment of them is just. I know some people will say, how? How will he deceive? I mean, Jesus will have been ruling and reigning on the earth for a thousand years. Who in the world will he deceive? Oh, I don't know. The same people are often deceived in our society. Young people, that's who. Why in the world do you go after older saints who've been living under a perfect society where Jesus is ruling and reigning from the throne of David in Jerusalem? Would you even attempt to deceive them? I'm not all that bright and I would never pull a plan like that. You go after the people who are malleable and moldable and young and maybe a little bit inexperienced. I'm sure that the majority of people in this grand rebellion, that's who they'll be. And I'll tell you, I'll level with you. It shows me one thing, and I've never been moved on this. Rebellion is set in the human heart. Even with Jesus bringing in a perfect world, no wars, no poverty. There's no mention of it in the millennium. None. The cobra and the adder lose their sting, which means that you couldn't even die by picking up deadly serpents. Even the animal flora and fauna go back. It says that the lion is going to chew straw like an ox. The wolf and the lamb shall lie down together. Now, wolves love to lie down with lambs, freshly digesting in their stomachs but they don't lay down together as companions. Even wolves will go back to a vegan diet. I know a lot of vegans who are happy about that. No death and destruction, no unnatural deaths. Rebellion is set in the human heart and all it takes is Satan released from the abuso and he'll gather together an army of epic, ginormous proportion. You see, Satan's violent hatred of God and Christ will not be altered by his thousand years of imprisonment in the abyss. When he's released, he will immediately set out on his final act of rebellion. I know a lot of soft-hearted people are saying, maybe Satan will be better after a thousand years. He'll get really nice. He'll come out all rosy and super happy. Mm -hmm. No, 
afraid not, my friends. It doesn't look that way. It looks like he comes out with a vengeance. You see, God's not playing around and he shows no tolerance at this zero. He rains down fire on the last human rebellion. Fire comes down from God and the army that encamps around the holy city of God's saints, done. After this failed battle, Satan is then judged and tormented forever together with the beast and the false prophet who were cast into the lake of fire at the beginning of the thousand years. Go check Revelation 19.20 for that. In all honesty, not knowing a lot about the book of Revelation because he had been beheaded by the Roman Empire long before John penned it, by way of revelation of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes of this. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says, And the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and will bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Paul knew that much. Maybe Paul didn't know all of the eschatological system and all that the future held. But because of divine revelation, he knew that much. You see, Satan's future is fixed. And his days are numbered. Always have been, always shall be. Let's wrap up our study tonight. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and hates delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and hates were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the great white throne judgment of which no Christian will ever stand at. I know a lot of people have this huge paranoia factor. This is not for the believer. We might stand before the Bema seat, but that's rewards and or the loss of them. This is judgment. To which Paul said in Thessalonians, God has not appointed us to wrath. This is very different. John tells us, I saw a great white throne. And the Christology in this, the beauty of this is amazing. Great in status, great in power, great in authority. White shows his purity and holiness. Go all the way back to chapter one. A throne always stands for the sovereignty of a king. And him who sat on it is absolutely none other than Messiah. The Bible tells us that the judge is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll look at John 5, 22 to 27 in a minute. And more than likely, he and that throne stands for the fullness of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
but Jesus is the one who paid for our sins and thus judgment has been committed to him by the father. John 5, 25 through 27. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear it will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear my voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, that's the first resurrection in Revelation 20. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And that's the second one, which is why it is ever so important to know that your name is penned in indelible ink in the Lamb's book of life. Do you see the juxtaposition? There's the Lamb's book of life, singular. And then there are the billions upon billions of unrighteous dead. And John said, books, plural were opened and people were judged according to their works, plural. Not one little thing that sends anyone to hell, okay? That was a ridiculous slam on Jesus Christ's church today. It is a licentious and lifestyle given wholly over to the worship of self. That's what sends a person to hell. Warren Wearsby said, the white throne judgment will be nothing like our modern court cases. At the white throne, there will be a judge, but no jury, a prosecution, but no defense, a sentence, but no appeal. No one will be able to defend himself or accuse God of unrighteousness. What an awesome scene it will be. This is the only way I live in a fallen world that I live in. Because if I didn't have this hope and this faith, I'd already be a vigilante looking for psychos who hurt little children. All right? This is the only way people ask me, how do you deal with all the evil and the disgusting things you see in the world today? Because I know there's a God in heaven who sees everything. And let me tell you something. Every single person who has done any, every single heinous thing that they have done and have not repented for is gonna stand before a righteous God and their words will fall. Matter of fact, I don't think they'll be able to get off their face. There'll be nothing to say for all the bold assertions and the gnarly, disgusting things they've said about God. Richard Dawkins, who calls the God of the Old Testament a egomaniacal, megalomaniac, maniac, psychopath. That guy's gonna eat every one of those words at the great white throne judgment if he does not come to a saving faith. And so we need to be on our knees for people like that. Because this is going to be an awesome scene in both ways. It's going to be awesome in majesty because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will be there. And it'll be awesome in horror and terror because people will be judged there. And I can tell you, eternity is a long, long time to be wrong. That's why we share the gospel today. Amen? People ask me that one time. Oh, Dr. J, why are you so passionate about apologetics? But I'll tell you why. Because eternity is a painfully long time to be wrong. 
And I just want to make sure people are set in the rebellion and 100% sure. It's always asked people, you sure? Absolutely. I hope you're sure. Because forever is a long time to get it wrong. I don't think the fire, I don't think the torment, I don't think any of those things are the worst thing about hell. Truth learned too late will without fail be the worst thing about hell. And brothers and sisters, Peter tells us clear as day, always be ready to have an answer for the hope that lies within you to anyone who asks. First Peter 3.15. Have that, have that answer lined up. We'll close out with a famous quote from A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance. He said, what will you do with Jesus? Neutral, you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do? with me. Let's pray. Lord, your word is unbreakable. The scriptures cannot be altered. There's a plan that you have, Lord. You've had it from all eternity. And we see the reigning and ruling of Messiah in the first six verses, Father. We see a rebellion that takes place that you put down. And then, Lord, we do clearly see a retribution for all of the lost who have not turned. Lord, what we have now is we have time on our side. Clearly, clearly, Peter does say that you're not slack concerning slackness, but you have a long-suffering love that no one in this room can even grasp the depth of, oh God, because there's no one like you. That means no one loves like you do. We have a snippet of it. We know a little bit. And you're not willing, which is the same word for wanting, anyone to perish. As you say in Ezekiel, turn, turn, why should you die? Repent and live. Further in Ezekiel, you, you tell us, oh God, that you take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Not even those who really absolutely deserve it in your economy. You don't even take pleasure in that. And so, Lord, let your word burn within our hearts, oh God, to get out and be very active in what we do purposefully. To spread the gospel, which is the only hope for fallen men and women in this world they may fall on their face and confess you as Lord of all. That you are the only mediator between fallen man and holy, righteous God. Only you, the man, Christ Jesus. Help us, Lord, for every appointment we may have and every heart that we may run into, that you would fill our words and empower us by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to be your ambassadors that we too may boldly assert he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Help us preach the pure gospel, Lord, everywhere we may be. In Christ's name we ask, amen. And so here's a couple questions for you to ponder in your small groups.